On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Peter Gabriel's Up. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter, as we continue in the Peter Gabriel catalog with Up. Well, gentlemen, Welcome back. We are switching gears back to Peter Gabriel after um, after spending several weeks in the fish catalog. And while Peter was doing whatever it was that, that Peter was doing between the last album and this one, now there was like, what, one or two, I think, at least one uh, soundtrack, the... OVO or OVO, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce that. And, you know, some of that does play into this record in terms of it was, I guess, started in 1993. Some of the tracks were recorded as early as then and kind of put on the shelf before Peter finished whatever else it was that he was doing and and came back to this. But, But again, 10 years between us and up that's pretty long time this was <laughs> early early 2000 uh what was it 2002 i guess yes yes and you know so here again gosh i was i would have just been starting my family at this point which means this was when i was you know, and it's not any sort of commentary other than a statement of fact. This was when I was on my way out of listening to music regularly. This is probably mm. one of the last things that I would have have purchased, you know, for its release. I don't believe I saw Peter Gabriel live at this point. I think the only time I saw him was for us, which is sad. But uh, but this is a record that I do I've had ever since it came out, and I have loved ever since I heard it. So you know, for me, the the wait was certainly worth it. And and even now, going back and listening to this record for this this episode, I really do think that this album is in many many ways just brilliant. I love it. I think it really. Somehow, Peter was able to sort of distill the best parts of everything he's done before into a record that, honestly, if you look at it objectively, has absolutely no right being released. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nothing on here that screams, this is going to be popular or everyone's going to like this. This is a Peter Gabriel record. 
This is a, a record that Peter, for whatever reason, said, this is what I'm going to do and screw the rest of you. Which, I mean, we've we've talked about this before, right? That's part of Peter's MO. Mm-hmm. But but this record particularly, I think, just distills that into such a concentrated effect. But at the same time, I find it to be just darkly beautiful. It evokes a lot for me. For some reason, when I compare this to So and other albums, this is almost appearing in black and white for me. I don't know what it is about the composition and the production, but the images evoked from up are are rather gray, penciled in, black and white. There's something very dark in a different way than <laughs> it's early, I see I see darkness in his early catalog but it's like hues of blue and like like the blue is gone this is like very stark it's very interesting how he chose to make this and and it's interesting given the way you describe it with the I mean not that he's ever had colorful covers right I think Carr was the only one that had any significant amount of color in it may have all been black and white but this particular album cover, if you look at it, it's it's more tones of gray. It is not black and white necessarily, right? Yeah. So it's it's fascinating. You know, darkly beautiful is is well is well said. And Ken, like one of the comments that I wrote throughout is how emotive this record is. My experience, a couple things that you said, Joe, that struck with me. This came out. I, I never, I never bought this. In fact, I owe you a, a debt of gratitude for burning this on a CD, slapping on a nice gray label, and sending it up to me uh, huh. when I lived in Newtown. I have just crazy memories of, you know, driving. This was when I was a rep in Jersey, and I was, I remember driving down River Road on the Pennsylvania, you know, side about to cross over into Trenton, and I had. Um, I had one of those like mini, you know, like the little portable CD players that you'd put a cassette in the cassette deck, yeah. you know, in your car and drive. And I remember listening to this record along that, that uh, I have memories of listening to four records on that drive on, a, you know, on that, you know, route uh, during that time of my life. One was yes, the latter. The other was Sting's um, brand the new one day. That, Brand new day, thank you. The other one is uh, Dada, their self-titled oh, uh, record, God. and this one. And I remember the the thing that struck me is what you said. This was right when you pretty much stopped listening to music regularly. And while I never really stopped listening to music regularly, I definitely took some time where I just didn't give a shit. And this was one of the last records, I'm going to say, that kind of ma- made me feel, sorry if you can hear Luke there mm-hmm. in the background, uh, made me not want to listen to music. And I mean, it's just like this album did nothing for me. Really? And Nothing? And nothing. Wow. And, and um, what's funny, I also, I'm going to draw a comparison because I had, it was, I had forgotten that it had taken so long for this record to come out. 
I'll draw a comparison to Tool's latest record. That took something stupid, like 13 years to come out or whatever like that. And it was like so anticipated. And that record is basically like a carbon copy of their last record. Like there's, there's nothing offered of any growth whatsoever. It's the same shit and it's great, but it's, it's really likable. But it does absolutely nothing for me. And this is how that this album has been all these years for me. I couldn't find anything wrong with it other than it just never connected with me. Um, I, I will say that revisiting it, I have a much deeper appreciation uh, uh, for, what's, for what's going on on this album. You know, I'm sitting here hearing you say that, and, and I want to get all riled up. It's like, how could you say that? But I, <laughs> I, I, I do understand exactly why you would say that. Because if you, when you listen to this, and, and as I was, I was giving it my, my final go-through to write my notes, I mean, there are, and, and I said it in the thing, it, it, it takes a lot of cues from what he's already done. So on, on one level, I hear exactly what you're saying. But for me, personally, I think he takes all of those things and somehow does them better here. Mm. Interesting. Yes, because I would say that taking cues from all the things he's already done, I would just say it's derivative yeah, but I, and, I mean, and throwing I, on some industrial sounding drums to me doesn't, you know, doesn't elevate it at all. And, and it's it's interesting because, you know, I, I had obviously the all of the moments. I can't argue the point because you're right. In some ways, it it is derivative. And I totally lost my point, which was going to be. It's OK, because I I can't really argue with the point of view that this is an exceptional album because you know there are some i mean i'm probably just more mature now than i was in 2003 barely but, <laughs> but, huh, but a little bit you know and a little bit more patient and a little bit more open-minded about about this and to be honest i didn't really like anything i heard in the early 2000s yeah, I, I can't argue with with you either. I, I I can't say that it's terrible. It just, you know, for me, it just it just falls uh, a little bit short. It did make me think, though, like the way I reacted to this in in two thousand and two, like what had what if I had been along with like a band like Rush all along, right? And they and they put out like signals. What you know? Would I have? enjoyed that one as much as I do or grace under pressure or power windows. Like, would I have been like, Oh this, yeah. One of those you know, turning points. I, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know how I, I, I wonder, cause with rush, I just kind of got completely immersed into everything all at once. And I, I did find this much more enjoyable than I ever had before when I went back, you know, for, for our episode here. So my God, you two talk about your adult lives and your, commutes to work and starting a family you know my young adult life was music rumspringa from beginning to end and <laughs> uh, but so 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 i mean i mean we all experienced prog together in late junior high and early high school um and by the time this era rode around i suppose you guys hung on to yes 
to the degree that you could, but but Prague was was somehow dead, and there were all these other genres. So so I had been playing a bit of jazz fusion. I was a I fancied myself a bit of a sound designer for musical theater. Uh, I'd played in an orchestra, pit on guitar and bass, and 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 just done whatever I could in these various fields of music. And and uh, the latest release of Peter Gabriel was way off my friggin' radar. Um, so I had no idea that this came out until years afterwards. I, I do find it absolutely brilliant and liberating now, but I, I, I truly had no idea. I want to call out the timing and 9-11 because we know that that screwed up all sorts of record releases and tours for other bands. So I suppose maybe this could have come a bit earlier, but folks weren't in the mood to uh, purchase music or to do things. So, so it looks like he maybe waited for some of that malaise to taper. When I look through the, the timeline of progressive rock, it, it's pretty lean in this period. Um, instead, I have pulled up just general releases from this period. And it brings back all sorts of crazy memories. I'm, I'm seeing Black Label Society, Zach Wild. <laughs> oh, God. Low. The Ataris, the Dropkick Murphys, um, Katy Perry. <laughs> mm. <sighs> oh, my gosh. Uh, Spoon. I was really into Spoon. The, the whole indie thing had become grown up. And I remember seeing Spoon at the Electric Factory with cake. Oh. Um, Tortoise. Oh, my God. I saw I, I, I believe I saw a tortoise at the, at the Kyber. Dave Matthews is still active. You know, that whole thing came out of the 90s into the early 2000s. Snow Patrol. Uh, I'm seeing, uh, well, Aerosmith active. Just push play. Um, hey, not not for nothing. Uh, you know, Snow Patrol has a lot of popular stuff. Yeah. But their latest album is by far really the best good 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 really fucking good it's the one with like the space helmet on the cover i don't know what it's called okay it's called it's called wild wildness i think it's called sorry snow patrol good good still at it all right well this is this is 2001 staying on track here neil finn uh we we've talked about neil finn Mm -hmm. uh and we've we've been a fan Hey, Daft Punk. Um, oh, my God. Sepultura. Old 97s. I dig them. Um, I just thought <laughs> of a record that I would uh, bring to our 200th episode, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. W- when we cover the prog, not prog material, we really kind of shine and get into our, our, our personal uh, pleasures. <laughs> yeah um so so it's just a really interesting time like like i have no idea oh pete yorn uh he's an interesting character i have no idea what peter could have possibly been listening to because all of us had just gone off into all you know either not listening to music or the music that we did listen to was in different genres i see alkaline trio here that's a, a punk act from the midwest that i actually absolutely love three guys who absolutely tear it up um and let me do a couple more. No effects. 
I love Me First and the Gimme Gimme's. That's that that's West Coast punk. Um, that really just all fired up and shit. And when I was a sound guy in the bars, I mean that stuff just sold a lot of beer and made a lot of people happy. Uh, so so post nine eleven was really good for a punk revival for some reason. It was just people venting. Modest Mouse, right? You know, that's another one. You know, early 2000s. So it's just an entirely different scene. And, and some of these acts did get kind of proggy in their own right. Oh, Elbow. I'm a big fan of Elbow. they got some really melodic stuff. I love the way that dude sings. I'll leave it there, man. But it's just, it's just a very different time. 2000. So, yeah, I, I, I want to jump in on there because what I thought was interesting, Ken, when I was, you know, I always pull up the timeline of Progressive Rock just to, to bookmark it before you go uh, before you do your thing and i was interested in 2002 because while you do have like dream theater had a release rush did vape portrayals um frank zappa had a release what i found fascinating is that a lot of the bands that were releasing material during this time i had no interest and no idea of who they were and yet they're Muse? all the bands that i'm starting to listen to now Right now that I've sort of had this progressive renaissance, right? Because because of the the palaver. So like Coheed and Cambria, yeah. Um, uh, RPWL, uh, Camel. Well, Camel was around for a long time, but Spock's Beard, yeah. Um, Glass Hammer. The day after Up was released, Porcupine Tree released In Abstentia, mm. which some people credit for you know the rebirth of of prog music, whether you agree with that or not. Opeth. The Flower Kings, Big Big Train. So it's right. funny because like all of this was just happening like over my head, no idea. Like I'm just like angrily driving to work, wa wondering why Peter Gabriel's not doing it for me, and worried about what cover songs I had to learn for the next wedding. You know, <laughs> like ha 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 ha. So I'll go through the particulars of the record and then I, but I want to come, I want to come back to this sort of topic too, because this conversation between you guys has sort of raised a question in my head. So, wait, wait, wait. I, I got to vouch for Paul's uh, wedding gigs. <laughs> right. Right. Cause Paul, 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 didn't I like send you an email or something and say, Paul, you, you gotta, you gotta meet these guys. Yeah. Ken, you, you uh, hooked me up. Jim needed a couple months off and you sent an email and said, Hey, Steve's looking for a fill-in. Here's a set list. And I yeah. took one quick peek at the set list and saw Jesse's Girl and Copacabana. And I was like, I'm fucking in. <laughs> <laughs> talk, about, talk about the year the prog died. Oh my God. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. We got that out of our system. <sighs> so, as mentioned previously, Up was released in September of 2002. It was released on the label Geffen in the U.S. and Canada, or Real World Elsewhere, and produced by none other than Peter Gabriel. Now, normally I go through the, the players, but this list is ridiculous. If you go to the wiki page, it is just off the charts. There are 85 gazillion people in here. So I'm going to kind of go through and touch some of the highlights. So obviously we have Peter Gabriel doing everything. 
Um, Tony Levin shows up on every track but one. David Rhodes is there. Manu is there. Shankar shows up. Bob Ezrin gets a, 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 ra- a brass arrangement. I want to say uh, there's Daniel Lenoir is there. There's someone else who has a, a brass arrangement. Um, there's just there's a whole bunch of of people that it's just it's way too much to to deal with. Oh, and Melanie Gabriel actually shows up. Is this the first time she's been on a recording? I think. I don't oh, recall, that's a tough one. I don't recall, I don't recall. mentioning her before. So it would be us, if anything. So, <clears throat> Joe, the only other the only person I think uh, that is worth calling out that you didn't say was Peter Green on uh, on track number three probably the most oh yeah the, probably the most interesting guitar line on the whole album in my in my humble opinion you know he, i don't think he's been around on anything before and it's just kind of cool that that he showed up somehow. and uh, that's that's a good good catch paul as well as uh, nusrat fatah ali khan on signal uh, to noise which is there's an interesting side story yes ken Yes, uh, although Peter wrote "Talk to Me" for Melanie, it was the parts were sung by Sinead O'Connor. Oh, okay, correct. There you go. Correct. So this is this is in fact the first sighting of Melanie. Perfect. The track listing is "Darkness," "Growing Up," "Sky Blue," "No Way Out," "I Grieve," "The Barry Williams Show," "My Head Sounds Like That," "More Than This," "Signal to Noise," and "The Drop." And ironically, I, I find it somewhat ironic, the, the wiki intro for this album is exceptionally short. Up is the seventh studio and 13th album overall released by the English rock musician Peter Gabriel. It is his last full-length studio album of new original material to date, as the subsequent albums Scratch My Back and New Blood feature covers of other artists' songs and orchestral renderings of Gabriel's older material, respectively. Boom. That's it. So the question that that came to my head as we were kind of going through the the timeline and everything else and the nature of this record is, and and this has been a question throughout, you know, this general period. We've covered multiple acts through the late 90s and and early 2000s, and, and this question keeps coming up. But I think it's fun here, and that question is, is up a prog album? I think it's a resounding yes, but simply Ken Ken quickly said no, no, it's not. But I would argue that it is uh, because of its exceptionally unusual nature, and and this goes back to to the the argument or the statement that I made at the top of the show in that. There's really not a song here that is constructed in any way, shape, or form to be popular. There's just not. And there's no Sledgehammer. There's no Digging in the Dirt. There's no Salisbury Hill. There's nothing like that, to be quite honest. No, but there is I Love to be Loved and a couple of others. (laughs) I agree, though. I I think it's most definitely Prague. Like I don't. I it's fun. I'm surprised you even asked the question. I, well, I mean, it's like I said, it, it comes up a lot, and and we've asked this question of of Peter Gabriel before. 
when when yeah. he had some of these you know super mega hit departures. But well, yeah, you just declared this a Prague album. You're already on your own branch there. <laughs> I get it though. I mean, okay, you know he 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 he's deliberately taking us for a ride. And I do see a lot of his personality and his drive and his evolution here, even at an older age, even though it's a, a, a bit different. Um, I see him in this. Um, there, there, he loves, I think, the two-part proggy song where he starts and it's one thing and then it goes to something and it may or may not go back. It seems to be a very native formula for him. That that gets his expression across. And, and, and that's, that's an excellent point, Ken. And, and it's interesting, certainly in this record, I think, because sometimes those two pieces will be sequential and sometimes they'll be overlapping a little bit. It's kind of funny how he'll do that. And, and what I was going to say, I just hold on to it and search around for a while. I'll get my, my thoughts back. There are other artists who can go into a period where they will make an album of their own, if you will. But it can often come across as completely unintelligible. And it may very well be that to most people, Up is unintelligible. But for whatever reason, to me, it is crystal clear, and I Whoa. get it and connect with it. So that's why I'm going to give him him props for, you know, being able to be relatable while being supremely Peter Gabriel. Um, that binary format from from one idea to the next, I'm going to call that the love to be loved formula. Okay, where it might start a little dark and groovy, and then just blossom like a flower at the end and it could go in the reverse order where it could start beautiful and then get very ugly um but 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 this sim seems to be core to his creation to me one of the and, and it's i guess we can probably just get into it because i think the songs themselves will illustrate a lot of the the thoughts that i have here and so so darkness right out of the gate does this perfectly because the way darkness opens, it's very much as if Melt had been recorded with cymbals. It, it has that noisy feel to it. You know, it has the, the weird noise guitar coming out of nowhere. And, and it, 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 it has that. And, and one of the things, maybe this fits in with your, with your theory, Ken, but throughout this album, the dynamics and are out of control. They're completely off the charts in darkness. But it's it's thank it's, you, thank you. It's it's very wildly varying dynamics throughout, and I think for the most part, it's handled pretty deftly. But darkness is jarring, and I think darkness is jarring very much on purpose in that regard. Yeah. Could we tip our hats slightly to Trent Reznor? We could. Should we? Well, I wrote down in, on one of my sheets here, 
I prefer my Peter Gabriel without a dash of Trent Reznor. <laughs> um, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, you know, I'm torn, Joe, because I agree with you. I think darkness is overtly dynamic and it just doesn't work for me. Like, I, you know, to me, there's just, I don't know. Is it, is it, is it contrived? Is it a trope? I don't know. To me, it's just, I mean, I think if anyone spent any time listening to us, they know that I'm not a big fan of super quiet lows and super loud lows happening in the same track, right? Can it be done? Of course it can be done. It can be done wonderfully, but not like this does not make me happy listening <laughs> to darkness. And maybe, maybe that's the idea, but I don't think the intention was to like make me mad at the, at the sounds. Um, so you're telling us there's no dynamics processing in your Jeep yeah, it's, or it's any this. other, any, any <laughs> other car that I've had. Yeah. Mastering done by Paul Zotter. <laughs> right. That being said, Paul, and, and I'm curious here, is the softer side of this, does that connect with you and you're just put off by the, the, the industrial noise part or? Yes, you could say, you could say that. So like, I actually think that the, the tail end of this song, like the last minute or so starts, starts to like, like it starts to evoke memories of like Foxtrot for me. Mm. So so yes, there there are some there are some places in here that I really am like, boy, I really, you know, would like would like it if I liked darkness better, you know. But I but I I think part of this the the trouble that I have even now listening to this is that, you know, like if I I think we you know you guys know like I need to really like be into the music to even like tech take the step to say hmm, I wonder what the lyrics are for this song, right? Or have just a really amazing vocal line that I want to try to sing along to, and I need to learn the lyrics. Like the lyrics are always the last part. And when when I when I face these circumstances that I have a tough time computing and handling, I, I just don't even care. Like I lose. Hmm. There's probably so much of this that I'm missing simply because I'm like, oh my god, turn that down. See, I I, I love the way the dynamics reflect what the song is about. And so for me, I think that's why it works so beautifully. The, the, the noisy parts are all those things that we're afraid of. I'm afraid of loving women and I'm scared of loving men. I always love that line. I love the, the very subtle change in the, in the fear aspect of that. I just think, it, I think it's brilliantly done. You know, these are these fears, the things that get us all clenched up and, and freaked out. But the way that he takes control over that with the walking through the undergrowth sections to the house in the woods. And in, you know, he's looking through the window and the, the monsters curled up on the floor. Right. And to me, I love the way that he's expressing this sort of control. He's saying, yes, I have these fears, but I have them. They don't have me. I control them. I'm in charge of all of this. And when you get there and you get to that, to the house in the woods part and you get the piano and, and the piano throughout this is very interesting because your mm -hmm. ear wants you to go back to Peter Gabriel three and, and so maybe, and hear the Yamaha digital piano, but it's not. It's actually just a piano, which is very mm. cool. 
Um, so you're, at least my ear will play tricks with me with regards to that. But this idea of, of this monster curled up on the floor just takes me right back into the end of Snapshot. And so, really, yeah, hmm. it, it's, it, it's that, that one image that sends me right back, which is kind of a cool thing for me. So nice, nice. And personally, I was starting the album and Growing up, it, it's a more logical place to start. Uh, I caught darkness a couple times, and I <laughs> I decided that track two was for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ken, it is Merca, so you have the right to make that choice. But mm -hmm. I think you're missing out. I have a general a, a general point about this record, but I'm not going to make it here since there is generally not a lot of love for darkness so i'm going to hold on to that wow we will okay. apply it later on but but ken you've taken us to growing up now yes growing up and ironically this is the one track not to feature one tony levin which is very sad. yeah yeah i love growing up i think it's it's as catchy as you're going to get on this if you if you listen to peter he says my brother-in-law died of cancer and my parents are getting a little older i've seen a couple of friends die and so death has definitely been more present in the last 10 years and it's been quite interesting in some ways and i've read a bit more about it and so on and i think there's a sense very often that people seem to retain their 17 year old selves throughout life in some way they may peg it at a different age, but I don't think people feel old internally or very rarely. <laughs> Interesting perspective on this. I, one of the things that gets me about growing up, musically it's very catchy. I think the images, I like the way that he sort of provides these, these transition points in life. From, from birth to, you know, loss of your virginity and, and ultimately through to death. I think this is one of the better examples of Peter using words. Certainly the first verse around the birth, I think, is lyrically fucking brilliant. I, I really, really respond to the way he described that. I think it's, it's clear, it's evocative, and it's very clever all at the same time. And, you know, we've been talking so much about fish and say what you want to about Fish. For the most part, Fish is very, very, and we've talked about this. He's He uses way more words, generally speaking, than Peter does, but he chooses those words and crafts them very carefully. Peter is much more terse with the amount of words he uses, and sometimes he can be maybe a bit too obtuse, but I think here he is spot on. What really gets me about this, and I wanted to, to watch this as well, but I just... I I didn't get a chance to. There is, and there's a, a live performance of this, and I don't honestly know I, if it was the tour for this record or some tour after, because I bought a a DVD of the Growing Up concert, which I thought would have been this one, but it wasn't the recording that I wanted. In in the in the concert that I'm thinking of and i saw this a very long time ago it the show was actually in the round and for growing up peter climbs inside one of these big inflatable balls and he's singing inside which is very weird for the first verse but during the chorus he starts rolling the ball around the stage <laughs> and mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it is 
it works on video because you can cut inside and see Peter, right? And right. maybe maybe at the show they had it on the screen. I don't know, but it, it just I don't know how it would have been live, but it has yeah. always stuck with me ever since. And but I, I haven't had a chance to figure find that video and watch it again because that I recall that being an excellent uh, set actually. Is that the same video where, like on Salisbury Hill, he was riding a bike yes. around the? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, yep. yeah, yeah. That would be a fun concert to go back and and check out. You know, I don't know what it was about two thousand and two ish. I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't catch to see if Seal's fourth album came out about this time. But I think all of the all of us who are going to the Spectrum and various arenas to see Peter Gabriel. In you know the late '80s and early '90s, now it seemed in the early 2000s we were all going to the clubs because the, everybody everybody seemed to be fascinated with the house beat, which mm-hmm. is present here on this. Which which was like, and, and all I'm saying is this: in 2002, after being pissed off about the the dynamics in in darkness, and then hearing. The house beat over us, you know, basically the what sounds like us with the house beat. I was like already checked out of uh, <laughs> of this album, but that was then. That was then. I have I've grown a lot since then, and I'm much more fond and much more patient with the house beat. In fact, I think I I actually like it. Um, but I'll say that. Uh, I do think this is one of those very, to me, it's very derivative of us, but it's, it's a very, very cool track. And, and the, the constant chorus and the back and forth that the differences in the chorus with like the different voices, I think brings out a lot of what you said, Joe, about the, the phases and, and, and the tonality of the voices. Again, I hear what you're saying with regards to the relation with this and maybe us, but every time I hear that on this record, I will choose the up version. And I don't want to bag on us. It's just I prefer up. That's just yeah. my, my gig. Well, it's a, it's a kind of a fun thing because the more I listened to this for, for this exercise, the, the more I liked it, the more I like it. And the more I was surprised how much I liked it because of my memories of not liking it so much. <laughs> And so, so, so strong. Yeah. So I, it's, it's kind of funny because you feel like, you know, kind of feel a little foolish. But, you know, I, then I was young and foolish. Now I'm a much wiser man. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll continue to uh, explore this one. And who knows, Joe, maybe I will prefer this one over us as well. I don't have a commentary so much as I have a question. One dot that's on or off defines... What is and what is not one dot? Two dot, a pair of eyes, a voice, a touch, complete su- surprise, two dot. Okay, help me out here. What's going on? I got nothing. One, one dot, two dot. I got nothing. Okay. I'm a pale All blue right. dot, you know. Ha, 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 reference to uh, Simon Collins. and uh, Nice, nice. Dave Kersner in, in uh, Sound of Contact. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pale, pale blue contact. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I uh, honestly, I don't, I don't know the the dot thing. I've I've never really sorted out. Yeah, that was going through my head this week. Everywhere I jogged, it was like two dot, 
And I'm like, well, two dot. Why am I singing this? What is it? It okay. is. It's pretty catchy. It's it's yeah. It's definitely yeah yeah yeah. So I'm I'm curious, given the fact that I'm probably less cynical about this record. That's a safe way to say it. How do you guys feel when at the very end of the song, the little keyboard comes in with the with the vocal melody? Is that is that fun ear candy or is it just pointless and stupid? I think I like it. I, w- I would have to hear it, but um, I, I do like the fact that this is, it's almost a period piece. Cause yeah, we were all in the, in the house beat and it was cool to do the same groove for, you know, what was it? Seven and a half minutes or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that's what we did then. And that's what he did here. And that really works. And, and, and all the, reiterations of the melody on voice and instrument are perfectly appropriate for this style. It, I'm, I'm a huge fan of things happening in the fade. Okay. So I, I think it's, I think it's fun. Yeah. I think yeah, it's cool. it is fun. And, and it's, it's a, I mean, it's a fun little tone that he's got. And yeah, if yeah. it were any more, it would be probably annoying as crap, but when it just comes in on the fade out, I, I just, it makes me smile. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It, it. it may be, you know, one of the ones that stays with me the most coming off of this. Which takes us to Sky Blue, the oldest track on the record. And according to PeterCabriel.com, in fact, we had one go at it on the last record. And it may have been before then. So Sky Blue has been around for quite some time. It's a very, very old song. It definitely has a Mercy Street sort of feel to it, but it's it is it, it's certainly produced a little differently. And I think personally, for me, the, the bass and guitar tones on this are just delightful. I think it's spectacular, and maybe because there's there's relatively little else going on, this track is maybe the first time on this record that you get a sense for just how wonderfully Peter is singing. He has some some just spectacular vocal moments. And we've said this before on the last two records about how good Peter has gotten with his voice. But I, I just think it on this record, he sounds just wonderful. I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I will bring in my other comment here because I think I think Sky Blue illustrates the point as well. With songs like this, where there isn't some sort of, you know, coherent, you know, riff thing going on or there aren't shredding solos or whatever else the case may be, my impression is that it's easy to come to the conclusion that these songs are quote-unquote easy to play. And I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think it's easy to make music like this, even though it's not super busy, right? And the and even like having the the brain space to envision the the production of it all and putting it all together and you know, there's so many different tones and percussion percussion type tones. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with you. Like you know, the thing with Sky Blue, it's like, to me, this is dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the swells of the instruments, 
there's an emotional quality to it builds and grows with the song with his voice which which i which i far prefer to the, just the obvious everything's super quiet and now everything's super loud um and i and you know i don't i don't want to rehash that but yeah so yeah i i, I love it and um i feel like this, the turnaround sort of uh, sort of gives me a Marillion-ish feel, too, which is odd in the midst of mm. Mercy Street, you know, part 2.0. <laughs> um, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, this, I mean, the ambiance and, and the, the way this song is put together is outstanding. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm seeing that the Blind Boys of Alabama did uh, additional vocals, backing vocals on track three and track Hey, I was definitely interning sound crew at the Folk Fest when they played probably a couple of times. Um, and that's, uh, that's quite a righteous bunch of backup singers to have. Not only did they do the album, but it looks like they appeared in the Growing Up Live DVD in 2003. So they actually shut up for the gig. This is pretty damn cool. And, and just the quality of the vocals is just sublime. That takes us into No Way Out. I've got another note where once you get into the chorus section of this, it definitely has a Red Rain vibe. So again, we're being sort of derivative. We're, we're reaching back into our catalog. But, but I think he's taking parts of these things and he's sort of reimagining them in, in a way that works for me. But the way this song builds, the intro to this song, is just fucking awesome i'll say it it's fucking awesome so you've got the bass sitting there and then you've got the guitar riff that comes in which is very cool and then you've got the other guitar with the with with the sort of chords playing on top of it and then as you're as you're sort of wallowing and all that and just rolling around in all the wonderful you know tones going on you're like wait a second what's that drum brushes okay what the fuck that's awesome and then and then as if you know you haven't had enough then the the piano comes in and just sort of it you it builds this soundscape that it just makes wonderful warm fuzzy things happen on my body and i found myself you know i've i've listened to this a couple times in in headphones and it's much more obvious there but when you're listening to it in the headphones you can really just i lose myself in those in those brushes and it is just great i love it it's so fucking good this is a rare place for um like i that that almost jangly fender mustang low running guitar line that happens uh Maybe I should look it up. Is this David or is this somebody else? But yeah, it's it, it's it it's 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 a little groovy and a little retro in the guitar treatment. But otherwise, it is your traditional Peter Gabriel mood. And you know, I, I, I we may have a little soundtrack dissonance here because again, I, I don't really have. Uh, a whole lot about what this song necessarily means 
but the vocals feel very triumphant. I'm not, I'm not convinced that they are, but they feel it very much. And, and the reason I say they're not is the, the story of the fish in the plastic bag is, oh, I, there's just something that, that hits me with that section. And I, I can't, it, it, I find it to be beautiful and compelling and sad and depressing all at the same time. Which is stupid, but that's the way it hits me. Ah. Well, this does appear to be Peter's, um, I don't know, solo effort. I mean, I mean, he, he plays a lot of things on this album. He definitely plays bass guitar on track four. He plays piano, harmonium. The only harmonium on the album is this. Hmm. That's uh, an air-driven keyboard instrument. Uh, it's primarily Indian in, in nature. Um, so he's he's definitely oh MPC groove. So he's doing the drum programming too in these f- first few tracks, and crotales, which which is a percussion instrument, antique cymbals. Um, yeah, yeah. He 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 couldn't get enough of himself on this track <laughs> for good I reason. Think, yeah. So. I, I think I read that this song was about death. Um, and I think that the, the imagery definitely it can invoke a, evoke a lot of things, but definitely if you if you read read them, think about them in that tone, it um, it, it comes through. But for me, the notes and the chords on the don't leave us part mm-hmm. just just like it's like somebody's jumping up and grabbing onto my heart and just like hanging on it i mean that's to me it's just so emotive and so powerful and it's it's there's there's not a lot of amazing things happening he's just singing beautifully the right notes in the in the right place yeah that to me this is the the highlight of the album for me this song. Oh my! The uh, drummer, I suppose. Uh, you you said brushes, and what, was that this one or the previous? I I, I thought it was this one. one, but I'm looking at the. You're talking about the super collider bit. Well, I was looking at Steve Gad, who's just kind oh. of a, 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 a jazzy percussion legend, uh, okay. and 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 he does drum on tracks four and nine. So that would that would track. Yeah. Help sense. me out with the super collider, though. So, on uh, on Peter Gabriel's website, it, the the paragraph on No Way Out reads: "The rhythm track of No Way Out was one of the earliest we began working on, and then it had more of a Latin feel." Chris Hughes took it and did this sort of programming thing with it, with a thing called Super Collider. But what it tends to do is break everything up into lots of little pieces and then reassemble them, but still very granulated. And it has this strange, mysterious percussion quality to it. Oh, yeah. This is the only song he contributed drum programming to. Interesting. So, I don't know. Very nice. I would have made a bet that they were brushes. So I mean, it, I it very with, much sounds I, like brushes, and, and there may be I, several layers here. I don't know. Yeah, I was with you on that one. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that that would be appropriate. It would probably be uh, Steve Gadd. Um, I got to say that I almost wish the liner notes and hence the wiki credits were uh, divided up into eras because there was the primary era recorded in the 90s and then the secondary, oh, I better finish this album in the early 2000s. And it would be interesting to see, you know, people divided up by era, but we don't get that level of detail here. I, I wasn't sure if this was in E minor or not. And I was going to say that if it was, then, you know, definitely Peter Gabriel wins the E minor dirge competition <laughs> uh, between. Uh, uh. But, uh, but I believe this is in D, D, some sort of D. Peter will never dirge me out. Oh, God. But there are other artists. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there is. There are. There is. There are really like, you know, Joe, that whole thing that you described. So many artists do things like that, you know, build, you know, soundscapes of things. And, and, and Fish certainly does that on some of the records that we've talked about it. And we've talked about how some of us like it and some of us don't in certain cases. I don't know. Can you argue like nobody does it as uniquely as Peter Gabriel on just here or on any of his efforts? I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't argue that at all. I don't mean to, to bag on our friend Derek Dick, but could this sort of be one of the one of the things that sets the two of them apart in that as we've gone through the fish catalog, right? Fish seems dependent upon and beholden to whoever his musical collaborator is at the time. Whereas by this point, certainly in his career, Peter Gabriel is running the music of his albums. <laughs> he makes music despite his collaborators. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. P P P Peter will craft his vision and pursue that division, that, that, that vision while, while taking input. And uh, Fish relies on his team to set a foundation, uh, which he rides on, like uh, Turkey Day Float. Yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting that you say this because one of the things, the reason I wanted to do like a fish lessons learned was because in reading the Rain Gods and Zippo's, you know, super deluxe booklet, he talked about a week long thing, like workshop that he went to. It was like a, a songwriting summit that was put together by a couple of producers. They had this like huge mansion they basically brought all of these different songwriters together and they teamed them up for a day. So fish you're today, you're going to work with Rick Astley and somebody else. Right. And they spent the whole day writing a song. And then at the end of the day, you know, in the evening they'd have a late dinner and they'd all share their songs with one another. Like in that week, in that project that he was involved with, he wrote half of, Rain Gods and Zippos, and even some stuff that I think trickled over into ideas for Fellini days. Hmm. And, but m I think more importantly, he had a better sense of like his role as, you know, lyricist and musician, whatever it is, which I feel like as we, as we got through Rain Gods and Zippos and Fellini days, he sort of lost that as we moved into. Um, Field of Crows and 13th Star, that, that's arguable. But certainly, like, he had that sort of awakening in the midst of his career. Peter Gabriel had that from day one 
when he decided to do his first solo album. And we're seeing how many years, what, 30 years at this point? Is it 30 years in this, that he's been at it as a solo artist at this point? Or is it only, is it 20 years? Uh, yeah, I don't sure. Know. I don't know. But it <laughs> well, took him he, so fucking he, long to write this album and do this album. I mean, he earned his stripes as a, a public kick drum aficionado and flautist. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it it's apparent though you know it's uh, it, you know it's obviously subtle throughout the whole the whole of his uh career i grieve is that where we are here we are now yeah. paul at, at the top of the episode you had i believe it was you invoked 9-11 and so my understanding is that it was ken that, oh it was but ken? that's fine okay my it wasn't oh, you know me, always dancing around New York City invoking 9-11. So, so I understand that there is there is some connection. This was one of the songs, I guess, it was extant at 9-11 or, or whatever the case may be. But there, I read something this week that, you know, connected this to, you know, to some of the things involved with 9-11. And it, it's, it's an interesting song. Because it was it was written, according to Peter, extremely deliberately. So he tells a you know story, a, a particular one about there was an American comic who came up to him, and Peter had always liked this particular comic's work, and and this person said, you know, I think that song "Don't Give Up" saved my life. I was suicidal and just kept on playing it, and you know. I imagine that other people have, you know, communicated other things to him. And so this imparted upon Peter this idea of, you know, what happens to songs once, you know, he gives them to to the public. And so he describes I Grieve as a tool that he deliberately wrote to address the idea of grief. And I think... You know, it was beautiful before, but but hearing the deliberateness of it, it it is even more beautiful. And the fact that he he did this with a purpose mm. just really deepens the meaning for me. And when, like the way he sings the line "I grieve every time," it it really does get you. And he, I think he does a really great job of sort of balancing out those feelings that you have when you're in that grieving period, because it starts out and it's very immediate and it's very consuming and claustrophobic and there's nothing else. And then as time goes by, literally in the song, and you start to find other things that are going on and things start to ease up a little bit and you feel bad. But at some point, you have to turn around and reconcile those two things. Because, I mean, the other alternative, obviously, is just move past whatever grief you had and forget about the person in your rearview mirror. But, you know, is that really the best way to, you know, honor, you know, the memory and whatever they were in your life? And so I, I think the way this song is constructed is extremely powerful and extremely adept. Agreed. My strategic foreshadowing at the beginning of the episode, the love to be loved song. This is it. 
and he just goes from grieving to one of just the most in, infectious feel-good kind of, I don't know, sedating kind of pulsing songs, but it's not a pop song. No, not at all. It, well, it, I mean, I was just going to say, like, the last three tracks, I mean, and let's just talk about this one. I mean, it's, how how is this not a, a prog song? I mean, the okay. places it takes you, the changes in the. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's Prague in the Steve Hogarth sense, the Neo Prague sense. I, I agree. It is the it is the Neo Prague. But honestly, by two thousand and two, is there anything but Neo Prague? <laughs> we are all Neo Prague, my friend. <laughs> I do love the song. I just I I think it's so well done, and when you realize, you know, it, it's. It's not a trick. It's not a gimmick. It's not. It is what you think it is. It's just better than you thought it was. It, I, it's brilliant. Yeah. Well, Amen. Uh, yeah. Prior prior to this podcast, I snuck in a run and I was on a corner waiting for some cars to go by, and he hit me with the lyrics: "Life carries on in the people I meet and everyone that's out on the street." And literally looking at the street, I just exploded i loved it mm. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome i love it <sighs> fucking great which takes us to the barry williams show nah. now mm-hmm. you know if if there was going to be a traditional you know radio play song this would be the one this was the first single they released but this is not a normal song in any stretch of the imagination. The, the, the lyrics are, you know, they're, they're kind of far out there on purpose. I get it. Um, the way that the song is constructed with sort of the, the vocal layers is not particularly normal in any way, shape or form. There's just, there's a lot of this that is atypical, I think. And so it like, when I listen to it, my brain wants to treat it like Son of Sledgehammer or something, but I can't quite get there because the words are coming at me are just so far out there. And of course, there's the whole Barry Williams angle, which just makes me laugh. And the right. fact that, that Peter didn't know, and, and not only, you know, for us in America, it's it's Greg Brady, but apparently there was, I guess, a rugby player also named <laughs> Barry Williams. And and so there were there were two big you know uh, people with this name in in the the two places presumably where Peter sells most of his or the the most of his records I'm not going to say most of but the most and he missed both of those which just it, it's mm. very very funny which is funny but it's also like Ken said I wonder what Peter Gabriel was listening to for the last ten years I don't know I mean I think the guy's got his head in the sand. Yeah, you know what's funny is I never actually watched that video, but this, sadly, you know, this, when I was driving down River Road, 2002, <clears throat> this was really the only song that I would be like, I'd pop it in and I'd just go right to this song. And, really? Um, and and it was very, uh, still very fruitless for me, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's for, sur- for sure the most accessible. Could, could I say this is like the, uh, this might be 
this might be a slight to this song. Is this the Jesus he knows me of uh, it, Peter Gabriel? It, yeah, yeah. I could, I, yeah, I could see yeah. that. But, you know. But I really love, I mean, okay, I like both songs. <laughs> yeah, clearly. But but there 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 are similarities there. Now, the the lyrics here, you know, Paul, did you call this accessible? Was that the word you Well, used? from a musical perspective, yeah. I think it's the most accessible. Yeah. But but when you have lyrics like my lover stole my girlfriend, I keep beating up my ex, I want to kill my neighbor, my daughter's selling sex. My SM lover hurt me. My girl became a man. I love my daughter's rapist. My life's gone down the pan. Okay. I mean, and 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 it's it's interesting, right? Because as I'm reading this, I'm thinking back to um, counting out time, right? This is what Peter has done. Peter has never shied away from saying things to make people squirm. And he seems to enjoy that. And yeah. so he's very much embracing it here. But in the context of this song, there's nothing to squirm about. That's right. exactly what Jerry Springer and these types of shows that he's that he's singing about talked about. It's a parody, but it's it's actually a mirror as to how basically the beginning of the end of pop pop culture. If it wasn't already a disaster, I just fucking love like the attention to the 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 details of every production thing and i don't know why here it it grabs me so much but i love it when in the chorus the backing vocals are like the barry yes. Williams show it's like so sharp on the show i just fucking love that every time i know exactly what you're talking about because i yeah. love it and and musically uh, it's it's awesome i mean tony levin is is just slaying it mm -hmm. and you've got You've got the two guitar it's lines. It's not obvious. Tony Levin slays it twice near the end. Um, in, in kind of in the outro, they kind of turn him up a little bit. And then there's the super outro where he kind of gets to well, meander. But, but it's not your typical um, here's the steam where he's I, present the whole time. Here's the thing. I, I, and maybe this is what Joe's getting at. It's sort of like my friend Dave Tighe. Dave Teig is a wonderful bass player and I have gone to see him play live and I love him so much. Like he'll play, he'll just play on like, on like a song and I'll be like, Oh my God, it's mind blowing. Like, because just everything. And that's kind of how, like we've been listening to Tony Levin so much at this point in time when he just plays like two notes it's you're just like oh yeah no <laughs> no one plays those two notes like tony levin and, and right. that's, that's the beauty of tony levin because we know he can shred our faces off but he he's able to do you know to communicate so much with so little at the same time he can yeah. play something that seem that should be straight and yet somehow it's wonderful yeah amen yeah amen i'm with you with you joe I haven't quoted author Daryl S. Leia without Frontiers, the life and music of Peter Gabriel in this particular episode until now. And here is what he has to say about the Barry Williams show. Arguably, the only wrong foot on up is the Barry Williams show. A satire ah. on the growth of confessional television programs, which seems out of step with the first person emotion of the rest of the album. 
The closing refrain over the synthesized bangs and crashes of Come On Down echoed from the famous Price is Right game show catchphrase. The track was chosen as a wholly unrepresentative first single from the album and missed the charts, despite a humorous Sean Penn-directed video which featured Happy Gilmore, actor Christopher McDonald as Williams. Yeah, I, I really need to watch that video. And and I can't argue with that because, I mean, if you think about, you know, the, the, the conversations we've had up till now, and it it, it is, it, these songs are generally very personal, pers- you know, personal, internal, you know, dealing with things in our head. And, and there has been no Peter Gabriel whimsy at all. And and there is here. It's mm-hmm. so I you know I get it, but I just I enjoy it enough. But I I, I accept the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah I don't know if there's any greater purpose. Um, if there's some sort of intended irony to say like this is so personal, and we all have these personal deal, we all deal with our personal traumas in the in our own ways and then you know uh, then there's this certain group of people that just exploit it on tv or if you know joe you mentioned there is no steam there is no the sledgehammer digging in the dirt well maybe this was supposed to be it and he was like yeah i'll give you a hit here you go you know ah 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 because it, I mean, it is really produced. I mean, aside from the fact that it's like seven minutes long, like it's produced like a hit. Like all the, like the horns, like that's so like early 2000s. Like, I don't know. I feel like it is again. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's heavily compressed and it's right in the pocket and it's got the house beat with a little bit of his previous funk. It's done really well. Um, I still feel that it's, kind of got that weird black and whiteness to it. it just the production doesn't jump out to me with hues of color is it possible it's just too obvious it's what you or i would just flippantly say while flipping through television channels whereas to be gabriel-esque per se or early gabriel-esque maybe he would put a perspective on it, like uh, seeing it from Barry's point of view or, or something very twisted about this, where it, it still communicates all the tawdry images of reality TV or confessional TV while staying in the zone. There was probably a way to do this. Yeah, I, I see your point, And I do. There is one thing that sort of knocks me out of the groove and and that is you know three quarters of the song is barry sort of salaciously describing all of the things that he's put on air and how much people love it and then out of nowhere you have the woman who takes his show and you're like where the fuck did that come from you know like it just right. it kind of comes out of nowhere and it's a little incongruous now the the payoff there is that last verse though where, yeah, when people say the things that they really mean, I hear my name, I hear them roar, just for the one more time I take the floor, just one more Barry Williams show. And, you know, the, the sort of build up there is, is almost worth the yeah. incongruous storytelling. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's 
I, it's I, very Dr. Seuss, but it's very Peter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I will very much accept all the arguments against it, but I just find it fun enough that I'm on board. And it really, it, its location in the tracking provides a bit of levity, and and while it's still kind of you know off-putting, you know, as a whole, the packaging it's it's it provides a little bit of a break from uh, what we've just gone through uh, so far on the first uh, and, five and, tracks. And, and that they could it could have edited it down maybe to you know yeah. I don't know. 339 or something like that well, i don't but, know but but keep in mind peter peter produced this so peter has no no reason to cut himself down we know right. how this that this is like that stephen goes. king's 25th book right <laughs> no one's going to edit that down ah well 800 pages you got it boy go so um, go stephen ah, king i i will go on record you know i love the dark tower i i love certain aspects of stephen king insomnia is a piece of garbage it's wow. terrible wow so don't read Insomnia, even wow. though even though it has a very direct Dark Tower tie-in, it's just not worth it. But sometimes my head sounds like that. Now, now I want now I want to go read Insomnia just because Joe told me not to. Go for it! I <laughs> dare you. I will send you my copy. <laughs> probably it'll probably cost twice what it costs to send a mug. <laughs> so interesting story around my head sounds like that. Uh, Again, coming from Peter's website, the mood of my head sounds like that was something that I liked. And there was a moment in Africa when one of the echo machines jammed and started malfunctioning. And I liked the sound of it. And so the loop which begins that track is actually from this Delta Lab echo unit, which was crapping out at the time. <laughs> which just, wow, know, I, I love it. He, and he goes on to say, I was just thinking about a depressed state, but where you have suddenly heightened consciousness of sound a bit like when you're about to throw up when suddenly smell goes into 3D, if you know what I mean. It, <laughs> it becomes a sort of heightened experience, and so I was just trying to picture it. Uh, I'm not quite sure what sort of, you know, benders that Peter's been on. Maybe this is where uh, Supper's Ready came from. But um, my head sounds like this. This song gets in my head. Because again, I think it's it's very descriptive, and and we talked about this uh, it, with some of the fish lyrics as well. How you know you can you can draw these pictures and and literally envision yourself there, and so this this sort of lonely, depressed state, right? You can you can see it and taste it and smell it and and feel it. And I find it to be very, very powerful. Uh, and and, and it's, it's interesting, Paul, because you mentioned on the Barry Williams show that it provides a little levity with everything we've gone through. There are some heavy-duty subject matters here, but I yeah. find that this album doesn't come across as particularly heavy to me. For what I mean, and I'm weird, but that's just the way it is. Um, so I, I do, I, I resonate with this song a lot, mm. and I... You know, just one other little sort of side note that has nothing to do with anything. I think the the horn aspect here always gives it to me a just a little bit of a Sergeant Pepper's vibe. Huh, kind of cool. nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and the version that I have in my book starts similar to what you said about there was this moment in Africa when one of the echo machines jammed, but also also. Um, 
from Bob Ezrin. We worked together with Ed Shermer on the brass at Air Lindhurst, where we did the Babe session. We kept the Black Dyke Mills Band after That'll Do, and we recorded the brass for that song. I'm very pleased with it. I thought it came out well. So it wasn't explicitly arranged to be this song. It was afterthought after a previous song. But damn, they nailed it. You know, I, I don't know what the what their relationship in time was, right? But apparently some of these songs were recorded in multiple places over multiple different years. And we'll get into it on Signal to Noise next. And, and they're able to take these recordings and these pieces and somehow craft them into something you know, greater than the sum of the parts. It's it's really quite impressive. I can't remember. I, I think my head sounds like that gives the impression of maybe being a binary song and exploding into something different than what started it. Isn't it short-lived and then it kind of ends us back where we started? I believe so, yes. Yes, 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 yes. I wish I could say that this song moves me. You know, I appreciate what you said about it. For me, it's a meandering humdrum. And then the out of nowhere, uh, we get back to, we, we enjoy some, um, I think this is where it's just like out of a sudden, there's like Trent Reznor drums again. And then we go back to quiet. I don't remember what I said about things on us. I know that I really like us, but I, but I also know that I rarely ever want to listen to it. I may have to go head to head, us and up. I would be curious to hear the outcome of that. So we'll move on to more than this. I've made the comment in the group text that I find Peter Gabriel to be a very frustrating interview, but apparently either when someone's writing this or they're able to cull the best parts, this the, the little blurb on his website about this album is just absolutely fascinating. More than this came right at the end, and I'd started a thing with guitar samples. I was mucking around with guitars, and Daniel Lanois left his beautiful Telecaster here. I can't play guitar to save my life, but I can make noises on it. The samples that we were getting, I was then manipulating on the keyboard, and the first sound that you hear on this track is that sort of a thing, and the track was built around that. Um, which I just think is cool. Anytime anyone invokes a Telecaster, I'm on board. There you so, go. <laughs> I, have to, I have to get into it. And, and it's funny because the, the first note that I have here is that the intro is so good. I love the fact that the... The vocal line has this sort of groove to it, which is really nice. The guitar, the bass, and the keys and, and the drums are able to sort of build tension throughout, you know, the I guess what we'll call the verses here. Hmm. But but when you get to that chorus, sonically it just opens up almost like when you have a cloudy day and all of a sudden the clouds are gone and you can see Aww. the blue sky. And it it's delightful the way that happens. Uh, I just, I, I really love this song. I probably would like it a lot more if what you just described didn't remind me so much of Secret World. Um, <laughs> I was going to uh, say, uh, what was this? What was the song I was going to say? It reminded me of it wasn't. It wasn't Secret World though. It was another one. Yeah, the 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 chorusy part. I wrote down Secret World doppelganger, and at least after all this time, like. I had my choice to listen to uh, this versus Secret World. I'd probably go with Secret World. I, and I think it's produced so similar to it. Like the way the guitar is coming through, the high piano stuff mm -hmm. going on. For me, it emotes that same thing, which I, 
I, as much as I hate to be so shallow, I can't get away from it. You know, like I should just listen to it as its own. But for some reason, psychologically, I just become dismissive. Interesting. Um, yeah, isn't that weird? Like, who am I? I can almost hear him say, prior to playing this, this one's for the ladies. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting. Like, what was that one from 13 Star where Fish is like, I told you that you were wonderful. Not that you were wonderful, but I told you that you were wonderful. <laughs> It's like this is a love song, but not a love song. It's it's it's, it's really a, a horribly wretched moment, and and then this more than this more than this so much more than this. There is something else there. Blah blah blah. Right next to you. Well, you you too, buddy. <laughs> you know. Thank you for uh, appreciating me being here right next to you and saying these very negative things. But it's a it can be construed negative or positive, right? Um, feeling so connected is positive. And in the electronic press kit for this album, Peter did say he was feeling up when he released it and when, when, when he recorded most of it. And, and that's why he used this name and insisted on this non-unique name for an album up uh, because he was feeling so up. So I, I, I'm going to just take him at his word for it. And that even though there are a couple of Gabriel-esque awkwardisms in here it's it, it's generally an up positive love song it just sounds good it really does i agree yeah i mean it, it whatever you want to say it i think it does sound good which takes us into signal to noise i i couldn't even take notes on this this track because i have just been enthralled with this track from one of the first few times I heard it, it gives me goosebumps. I think it's brilliant. I think it's powerful. It actually shows up on there's a there's a Genesis compilation called Archive that incorporates the solo catalog in and around the the Genesis catalog. And Signal to Noise is one of the one of the tracks from Peter that shows up on that compilation, and rightly nice. so. I think it. It, it, I just think there's there's so much to it, and, and professionally, you know, being a, an analytical chemist by trade, you know, ideal in literal signal to noise. So I love the just the the line, um, turn up the signal, wipe out the noise, and and obviously that's not what he's talking about, but it just it, it has sort of an extra layer for me, and and I really really like it. So the 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 Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan bit. So he had apparently mm -hmm. passed away before Peter finished this song, and apparently what they had was a recording that he had done of the track live before he passed away. And as Peter describes it, the the track at that point was a much starker song than it became. And Peter later as he was putting this together, I guess, decided he wanted something that was more orchestrated and sweeping. And, and this is going to come into play in the, the next Peter Gabriel episode that we're going to do for New Blood, where Peter has, is not shy, has never been shy about reimagining his work. 
And so the fact that he, you know, changed this song after, you know, the guy had sung what was a different song, essentially, but was able to, again, after the fact, essentially, construct this into such a a powerful track. It just, it, it knocks me on my ass every time I hear it. Cool. Nice. If you needed to answer the question, is this prog, you might just point to this track. Uh, from <laughs> you, you think that does it? I think it might cover all the bases. I don't think there's any Hobbit shit in there, but uh, I can't add anything to it. Like you said, well, I said I have to say I can't add anything to it, and then I'm going to add something to it. <laughs> you you said earlier, Joe, that this album, you know, he took cues from all of his, you know, earlier. It's just a very much a progressive. I call it a derivative, but you know, for you, it's a progression into into this. I feel like this track is takes cues from everything else that's on this record right that builds up into this like all all of the the effects the the emotion the the um the way that it builds up and then he and then he adds sort of a stringy orchestration to it at the end i mean it's it's fantastic all right so uh brilliant by consent i'll take it it's almost more of an there's a lot of techno art rock in here. Just to be a foil to what you guys have said, it's not really prog. It's 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 a well crafted studio oh, piece. It's, Kenny it's, G. It, it, it's not, it's not really neo prog. People talk, People say Tame Impala is prog, and I don't disagree with some of that. Actually, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean. Uh, I think I think Prague is reproducible, and I think part of the the challenge is reproducing that Prague in a live setting. And, and we critique, you know. Well, maybe that's why he went on the road with an orchestra after this. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> this is art rock. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. All right, continue. Receive and transmit. Well, there's only one place left to go, and that is to finish up with the drop which I don't have anything written down because after signal to noise, my brain is just kind of a big puddle on the table in front of me. And I'm incapable of even processing anything after that. And, and that's, that's a cop out. It's whatever, but I just, there's nothing about the drop that I even really care about after signal to noise. I honestly don't. I'm, I'm like, I'm spent. I'm done. Isn't this one he talked about in the electronic press kit about, written on a plane uh kind of the reality one by one you watch them fall fall through cloud one by one you watch them fall no idea where they're going but down it's okay yeah i mean it it is it's it's okay i just i think paul you had mentioned the you know the album tracking here and and generally speaking i think it's brilliant with the exception of this why you would want to land on anything other than signal to noise, I don't get. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than, you know, signal to noise really takes you, like you said, it, you know, you're a puddle on the floor. When you get done that, puddle on the floor can't, you know, get up and, you know, pull the CD out of the drawer, you know? <laughs> so there's you like... need a refractory th- period? <laughs> yeah, three minutes of Peter playing piano and singing to you to 
gather yourself, uh, you know, clean up, and then take care of, uh, you know, the next thing. On there your you list. go. Now <laughs> we we do have to we do have to give I have to give credit because I read somewhere specifically that this is Peter and a Busendorfer. And of course, anytime we, we come across a Busendorfer, we have to bring in the Tori Amos connection, who is famous for working with Busendorfers. And it's fun to say Busendorfer, so I'll say it a couple more times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why we're not a magazine column. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I don't have anything against it. I just, you know, it's, I just don't need it, honestly. Which one of his, of you guys finishes the wall early? I forget. Um, Ken. Not me. Until he is charged. Yes. So, so Ken finishes the wall early, and I finish up early. Yeah. That's legit. Ken starts up late. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and you just start up angry. So. <laughs> yeah, I do, right? <laughs> All right, so so that gets us through Peter Gabriel up, and essentially, you know, this is the end of the original Peter Gabriel catalog. We have another, at least one more episode coming up for Peter Gabriel, where we will talk about New Blood, and you know, the beauty of of having a podcast is I get to set the rules, or we get to set the rules, and in this particular case, I think there are some interesting aspects of of Peter and his general approach to his own catalog that I really, really want to talk to. And I think the orchestral reimaginings are are worth going into for the most part. Quite frankly, it's it's worth it just to talk about the first two tracks on the album. But I have other I have other motives in involved as well. But but this is this is the last of what Peter has given us in terms of you know original songs like this, and I mean what a way to go out! I you know again, Paul, you and I maybe have a slightly different opinion of of this record and and its its value, but it I just think it's it's brilliant, and given the catalog that that Peter has given us, and it's been. 20 years since this record came out 20 years almost mm. since this record came out and i don't know that i'm clamoring for any more peter gabriel if i need to listen to peter gabriel i have everything i already need leaves me in a good place with peter it's tough we contrasted fish and peter gabriel uh i called derek dick time to make the donuts guy and every couple of years he makes an album and Peter makes one donut and takes him 10 years, but it's delicious. <laughs> it's it's a super duper large donut with very intricate icing. and <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's a winner. That's a really excellent point, right, Ken? Because we, we, we did these two artists in, on a parallel track because we wanted to compare and contrast. And, and this is, you know, again, one of those things. And, and we've, we've covered it on Fish's catalog sort of in depth, right? It, the 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 last stretch of albums that we've been through from certainly Fellini days through Thirteen Star is are, are periods of great personal upheaval in in Fish's life and it's it's it can be sometimes painful to watch and you know he's making these donuts out of an obligation he's got bills to pay right yeah Peter Gabriel 
you know, I, I guess after he got out of the mess with the with the WOMAD and did the reunion show with Genesis, I, I you know, I guess he's had his his finances, you know, straightened out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so so Peter will make a record if Peter wants to make a record. And and when he does so, he will make the record that he wants to make. I mean, I, I don't think you can look at up and think of it as anything other than Peter Gabriel doing what Peter Gabriel wants to do. And, and when we talk about the, the context of early 2000, it's completely incongruous. It, it doesn't necessarily belong. It doesn't track with anything. It has certain influences maybe from what was going on, as we've pointed out. But I think as a whole, it's, it's, a, it's a singular sort of, of work that not many artists could have put out. Yeah, it's it's one of these moments on the palaver that I'm so glad we do this because I, I mean this this album is monumental in where it sits in Peter Gabriel's catalog in in the world of Prague and I I definitely would have missed it had we not gone back to 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 listen to all of this. Well, it always makes me feel good when at least one of us has one of these moments, right? Because again, there's we we do gain something from doing this, generally speaking, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. Which I can't wait um, till we get to our next segment because I've always loved the early sequence of Queensrÿche, but listening to them with a palaver ear as an older person really just it adds something, and I. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I am chomping at the bit, but but nice. we're not done yet. We still have we still have a little bit of Peter to go, and we still have a little bit of fish to go, and then we will get into that, and that will be fun. And hopefully by then Tom will be offset and can join us because we can't discuss Queensrÿche without Tom. That would be wrong. That would be wrong. Indeed. That would be. All right, but gentlemen, thank you so much for spending some time here this evening talking about Peter Gabriel's Up. And very much look forward next uh, Peter Gabriel episode to talking about New Blood. And I think we've got a little bit of fish in between. I don't, we'll see how the episodes come out. It'll be fine. It'll be great. Nice. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed talking with you and... Ah, I screwed it up. I haven't screwed that up in a long time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've, enshared, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.